You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On this episode, we talk about Marx's famous reproduction schemes from Volume 2 of Capital. Are these models for balanced growth as they're commonly viewed today, or is something else going on here? To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, I'll be talking to Andrew about a paper he wrote a while back about Marx's reproduction schemes. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. We are recording this current events section on September 1st of 2021, the day after the U.S.'s official end to the war in Afghanistan after 20 years there, the U.S.'s longest war. Everybody has an opinion right now about how the pullout went and how the war went. And Andrew, I know you have been thinking a lot about this and you might have some things to say that people aren't hearing in other places. So we're just going to roll tape and listen to, to what you have to say. Well, I mean, it, it, the, the situation is absolutely horrifying. The level of one-sidedness and hypocrisy and everything is, is just so overwhelming. I am, you know, so totally livid. I, I really cannot express how livid I am at the people who are saying, well, you know, the United States shouldn't have been there and Biden has the guts to finally uh, leave. They don't mention anything about the the fate of the people of, of Afghanistan, especially women, even somebody like uh, Rachel Maddow. And then what happens, the very next segment, she's telling us about the Supreme Court maybe uh, killing Roe v. Wade by what they didn't do in, in Texas last night. They, they didn't intervene in the Texas case, and so abortion rights are uh, almost gone as of this moment. I, I mean, how can you really be concerned for pe- pe- people's lives and people's well-being, people's rights, especially women, all this outrage over, over Texas, and, and you don't have any word to say about the women of, of Afghanistan who the Taliban is once again ripping their lives away from them? This discussion by Maddo of the Afghan situation, um, that wasn't an isolated incident. Uh, what happened is the domestic politics of the Afghan situation got reduced to immediate U.S. withdrawal, yes or no. Uh, At that point, she and the other liberals were so concerned to defend Biden's withdrawal against criticism from the right that any concern for the fate of the people of Afghanistan took a back seat, if if it even had any seat left at all. Uh, I'm absolutely livid about that that kind of hypocrisy. And so you're seeing that kind of thing on, on MSNBC. You're seeing crazy stuff from the other side in the Atlantic. And Applebaum has an article, you know, she's a foreign policy person, but the basic conceit of the whole article is that the United States war in Afghanistan was an exercise in human rights, in bringing liberal democracy and, and, and rights to women and so forth. Now, what took place was a very remarkable increase in people's rights over two decades when power was was taken from the hands of the Taliban and things happened. But this was never the mission of the United States to free the people of Afghanistan. It was never the mission. It was a byproduct and it was unsustainable. And why it was unsustainable was that wasn't the point of the whole thing. The United States was never in there for the benefit of the women of Afghanistan or the other people of Afghanistan. By the way, it's not just women, although it's principally women who are the victims here. Yesterday or the day before, the Taliban killed somebody on purpose, a male. Why? Because he was a singer. Any music other than religious music is now illegal, according to them, in Afghanistan. This is like taking the country back reeling it backwards to when the Taliban power before, which is reeling it back more than a millennium. Well, I know you have that Ann Applebaum piece in the Atlantic in front of you right now. Can you give us some quotes from there? Give us some context? 
Okay, so she says the Taliban will convert the violent extremism of its movement into a violent, autocratic, tyrannical state. The need to prevent this from happening in other places, to prevent violent extremists from invading places where people would prefer to live in peace and in accordance with the rule of law, is precisely why we have armies, weapons, intelligence agencies, and spies of various kinds, despite all of the mistakes they make and ugly things they sometimes do. The need to prevent violent extremists from creating structures like Al-Qaeda or rogue nuclear-armed regimes is precisely why North Americans and Europeans get involved in distant and difficult conflicts. It is. The clearest rebuttal of that is, look at them leaving right now. Look at the United States government sacrificing the lives of the Afghani people. It's very clear that this is not the reason that they were in there this was not the consideration as to why they left and biden is very clear about that he's he's not mentioning anything i mean you know you had a lot of people like oh well, what's going to happen to the the u.s troops and the other americans okay well they did the best they could what's going to happen to the people for the special immigrant visas the, the the translators the people who work with the u.s army well, they, they, they did something, right? But the, that was definitely a low-level consideration. What did they do for the broad mass of Afghan women? They don't care. They don't care. It's not why they are there. And this is the entire problem then with all of these people, like the, the liberal feminists, the bourgeois feminists, the NGOs, all, all these very well-meaning, good-hearted people. Now they're saying, well, maybe the U.S. government can use its economic pressure Blah, 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 you know, to make the Taliban do this and that. This is an imperialist power that uses its military and its other might for its national security interests, that of the dominant capitalist class in the country. To the extent that, that, that things happened to make people freer in Afghanistan, that was a byproduct. And look, it didn't last. If you really wanted to fight the Taliban and keep them from power, you wouldn't have tried to install a government that had no legitimacy. You wouldn't have then put all of your trust in the kinds of things they did, you know, creating this like uh, military structure like the U.S. did. I mean, these people really cared about human rights and creating d democracy. No, ba basically, you had a bunch of people in charge of the military here, there, everywhere in Afghanistan. And when the Taliban comes and threatens them and bribes them, you know, they say, OK, here, take the guns. The, the Taliban hardly had to fight. They were basically able to bribe their way through the country. The, the, the entire structure of power that the U.S. had, apart from its military might, the entire Afghan structure of, of power that it was supposedly building was, was a complete sham. People had to know that. If you really wanted to fight the Taliban, you know, you really wanted to, to do this, you would put arms in the hands, you would put training in the hands of the people. The people who were under the uh, whip of the Taliban, quite literally, people who hated them, people who were saying, we're not going to go back. And there are masses of people that bring demonstrations. All kinds of people are saying that they are determined, you know, not to go back to, 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 to Taliban rule. There are people who really hate them and who really want freedom in Afghanistan. And if you really want to fight the Taliban and you really want human rights, you're going to arm and train the freedom fighters. Well, the United States didn't didn't do that. The government did not do that, and that's because that was not their concern. Well, they've lost anyway. But the people who want human rights and freedom in Afghanistan and elsewhere in the world have to get serious. And getting serious does not mean deluding yourself over uh, what are the goals of um, imperialist power. The other side is, is, is equally to blame here. Right, and in regard to the other side, um, the Applebaum piece quotes Yanis Varoufakis, a recent tweet of his, Varoufakis being the um, Greek left politician known for his involvement with uh, Syriza. She refers to a tweet by Varoufakis, and he's crowing about the day liberal neocon imperialism was defeated once and for all. And he says, our thoughts are with the women of Afghanistan. Hang in there, sisters. This was August 15th he said this. Hang in there, sisters. It's like, yeah, great. 
oh, it's so wonderful. Liberal neocon imperialism is defeated so that the Taliban can take over and put women back in burqas and whip them and prevent them from walking outside if they're not accompanied by a male and preventing them from having education. Oh, but we care about the women. Hang in there, sisters. I mean, the unreality here is of, of all of these people, everybody. The, the, the only realistic one is like Biden, who's like, uh, look, I'm, I care about the national security interests of the United States. Okay, we're getting out of here, you know, with a tail between the legs. That, that, that's realistic. Everything else on, on all sides is unrealistic. The only way forward is to understand that you need a mass, popular, grassroots, anti-imperialist struggle on the ground. Imperialism is not going to help you. And saying hanging in there, sisters, is not going to help you. The, the people of Afghanistan have to free themselves. The people who hate the Taliban, and, but we, we have to help them. We have to, to the extent that they organize, we, we, we have to find ways to break blockades, get them shipments of, of what they need. We don't know much about the extent of resistance in Afghanistan to the Taliban right now, but we do know that there have been demonstrations against the Taliban. Even since the Taliban took power, there was a very large demonstration uh, against them. Uh, and groups like Rawa, the, the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, uh, they say that they're determined to keep opposing the Taliban. If the Taliban do not retain power, it's likely that warlords are going to take control. And they're abominable as well, uh, nearly as misogynist uh, as the Taliban. I'll tell you, Back in the 1930s, there were people from abroad who went and tried to uh, help. It, didn't fa it failed in the end, but, but the Spanish Republic to fight Franco. That can be, that can be done. I don't know what, what there is at the, the moment. Things are extremely fluid. I don't think the Taliban have much power or that they're going to be able to hold on to power very long. The, the alternatives look as bad or worse. What I'm talking about is that women and other people in, in Afghanistan can defend themselves so that the people who are oppressing and attacking them or thinking of invading to do that so that they think twice. That, that, that's what I'm talking about. And a lot can be done. We've seen the success of, of grassroots guerrilla insurgency around, around the world. You know, it's costly in terms of lives, but so is the alternative here. And, and we have to provide them with help. And we have to encourage their efforts to, to defend themselves and fight back. Okay? And that's what should have taken place in Afghanistan all along. Okay? And, you know, to just, like, hope that the United States is, uh, government is, is going to, you know, liberate women. Uh-uh. Well, we are out of time for this current events section. Up next, our discussion of a paper by Andrew about Marx's reproduction schemes. For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about a paper that Andrew wrote back in, I don't know, when was this written, Andrew? Oh, it was written really, really long time ago. It was published in 2010. And it's called Marx's Reproduction Schemes as an Unbalanced Growth Model. And I'm just going to, I guess I'll read the abstract or most of it so people get a sense of what the paper is about and then we'll, we'll talk about it. The abstract says, although Marx's reproduction schemes are commonly construed as balanced growth models, this paper argues that they can be understood as depicting a process of unbalanced growth. When the schemes of simple and expanded reproduction are compared, they imply that the transition from simple to expanded reproduction requires production of means of production to grow faster than production of consumer goods. On this interpretation, the reproduction schemes emerge as an early and accurate analysis of the quote-unquote, takeoff process. The paper defends this interpretation exegetically and argues that it eliminates an apparent incomp incompatibility between the schemes and the non-equilibrium character of the bulk of capital that arises when the schemes are construed as balanced growth models. Andrew, um, people make a big deal about Marx's reproduction schemes. Um, in fact, I think I read a lot about them before I even read his reproduction schemes themselves. Briefly, can you acquaint our listeners who aren't familiar what the schemes are? They are numerical examples of the process of capitalist reproduction. And reproduction means specifically the renewal of the 
conditions of production, the things that one needs uh, for production to resume. Okay, so for instance, in volume one of Capital, Marx says, okay, here's this period of production. You know, and the workers go into the, the factory, and there's machines, and uh, they produce some uh, cotton twist, whatever it is. Okay, but that doesn't just happen once. It happens again and again and again. But for it to happen again and again and again, certain conditions have to be satisfied. The, the replacement means of production, you know, for those that have been used up, have to be available. The raw materials uh, have to be available. Uh, labor power, workers have to be available. I mean, very importantly, they have to be available as a commodity uh, for capital to, to exploit. So all of those are uh, involved in the reproduction of uh, capital. And it's, you know, for each individual capital, but there are certain relations between uh, industries that have to exist for the entire total social capital uh, to be reproduced. In other words, for the whole process to be renewed to keep on going. Since we're probably going to get into into this anyway, can we talk talk about and define departments one and two for people? Yeah. I mean, a lot of what's going on is that Marx is trying to figure out how how the system is reproduced when some of production is devoted to producing means of production and some of production is devoted to producing consumer goods. And so he divides the economy into theoretically into two different departments, department one, which produces means of production and department two, which produces consumer goods and talks about the exchanges between those departments that must be necessary for the system to perpetuate itself. I'm sure we'll get into more details as we go through. So early on in the paper, you talk about the temporal single system interpretation, which you are one of the main minds behind the development of that interpretation. And we've obviously we talked about the temporal single system interpretation or the TSSI uh, in the past on this podcast, and its critique of equilibrium interpretations of Marx. What does this critique of equilibrium interpretations of Marx have to do with the reproduction schemes? Uh, is it necessary for Marx's reproduction schemes to be interpreted as depicting a process of unbalanced growth? as you do in this paper, in order for the TSSI to be a valid interpretation? Or is this sort of like a parenthetical argument that's not necessary for the rest of the TSSI? Well, it has, this, this issue has something to do with the TSSI, and it has something to do with the allegations of internal inconsistency against Marx. But the reproduction schemes have nothing to do with value theory, and therefore, they have nothing to do with the uh, the TSSI as an interpretation of Marx's value theory. So everything that the TSSI uh, says about Marx's value theory is completely independent and stands on its own uh, apart from these reproduction schemes. The reason the reproduction schemes have nothing to do with value theory is that Marx explicitly made the assumption when developing his schemes that he was going to abstract from, assume away, technological change, uh, and therefore abstract away from, uh, you know, just ignore uh, changes in uh, the per unit values of commodities. So all of his numbers are quantities of value, in other words, quantities of money, but since the values or prices per unit of the stuff uh, are not changing, um, in essence, it's, these, these numbers could also be interpreted as physical numbers, you know, units of machines, units of food, and so forth. Okay, but so the, the TSSI is an interpretation of Marx's value theory that has nothing to do with this per se, but the um, equilibrium thinking that leads to these interpretations that get Marx wrong uh, that the TSSI is a response to, that same kind of equilibrium thinking, you know, is embedded in a lot of the commentary, the secondary literature on Marx's reproduction schemes. Uh, a lot of nonsense is said. Uh, moreover, uh, while the set of alleged 
inconsistencies in Marx have to do with his value theory or one thing, um, Meghna Desai, a Keynesian kind of Marx-flavored Keynesian uh, economist said there's an even bigger, you know, internal inconsistency in capital between the general non-equilibrium character of Marx's work throughout capital and his concern with crisis and all that, and these smooth growing, you know, steady uh, schemes of reproduction. And, and you know, somehow we, we, we got to figure out like how Marx could have like been so inconsistent. Okay. And my, my paper re reacts to that and says the, the inconsistency that you're alleging, it, it's just not there because in fact, um, the schemes of reproduction are not equilibrium uh, models. Well, let's get into what they what the schemes are, because of, often when we read about them in the secondary literature, um, they're presented as models of a capitalist economy in equilibrium, and it presented as that that Marx's intent in writing these schemes was to figure out how. A capitalist economy could maintain balanced growth or, or equilibrium. Um, in fact, that was just my assumption because that's what I, how they've been described and all the, everything I'd read um, until I encountered your writing on the reproduction schemes, and then went back and read um, the the that part of volume two and saw that yeah, it's actually pretty apparent that something else is going on here uh, that Marx is trying to do. So maybe you could acquaint us with what your understanding is of Marx's intentions with the schemes. Right. Um, yeah, he, he was definitely not setting out to uh, put forward two models of balanced growth or one, you know, system in with balanced growth between departments one and two mm. and one system of no growth, uh, simple reproduction. Uh, in both departments. That, that was not his intent at all. What he was trying to do, and I think he did successfully, was to disprove a contention uh, put forward by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations that uh, had become standard in political economy. You know, it was uh, echoed by David Ricardo and so forth. And Marx thought it was nonsense what Smith was saying, and not only that, it was very important because what Smith was doing was putting forward a very early version of trickle-down economics. Mm. And what Smith said is, okay, so uh, when the capitalists, you know, get their profit, uh, they plow some of that profit back into production. Okay, so that's a problem. That's an issue of reproduction, right? So they they invest in new uh, machinery, uh, other means of production. Uh, they hire additional workers. But Smith says he doesn't use the word trickle down, but he says basically all of this trickles down because even the portion of the investment, uh, you know, that doesn't go to hire new workers, that buys means of production. Well, eventually down the road, all of that becomes you know, new wages, new variable capital, as, as Marx would put it, because let's say, I'll, I'll just take an example. This is not Smith's example, but let's say you got a capitalist and they take uh, $2,000 worth of their profit, uh, use uh, $1,200 to buy additional means of production, uh, $800 to uh, hire additional workers. Okay, but what happens to that $1,200 in new means of production? Well, the capitalists that have sold those additional means of production, they do something similar. Okay, so let's say they take, um, you know, the the $1,200 uh, that they're getting, uh, that's extra profit, and they plow it back into production. Okay, so they, they might put 700 in new means of production, 500 in uh, hiring additional workers. So already we've got 800 and 500, 1300 out of that two thousand dollars that's going to hire additional workers. Okay, but hey, those capitalists bought some additional machinery or whatever uh, to the tune of uh, 
I forgot what, what, what my numbers were, $700. Well, you know, somebody's going to get that money. They're going to put part in new means of production, part to hire additional workers, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as your Brenner would have said. Uh, you, you carry this on down the line, down the line, down the line, and eventually, according to Smith, all of that $2,000 gets spent to hire new workers. So it all trickles down. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as Mark said, this it, it's a luna, it's really a lunatic kind of argument. Okay, uh, it's kind of seductive, but it, it it really does not make any sense if if you just stop and think about it. But it, it's kind of seductive. But he says it, this just keeps getting repeated and repeated and repeated, and why? Because it's in the class interest of the bourgeoisie. You know, I think it's not hard to see how this is in the class yeah. of the bourgeoisie to say, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're getting all this profit and we're reinvesting it and we're using it for ourselves. But, hey, you know, it all accrues to you, the workers in the end. So, you know, just shut up and keep working. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but Mark, Mark said this is a completely preposterous analysis. Um, Smith takes us from pillar to post. And he says this really uh, – he says it in volume one of Capital, right when he begins to talk about uh, the accumulation of capital. Uh, this is mm. chapter 24, and it's got this section, and it's four pages, you know, just laying out what Smith said and, you know, just saying this is nuts. But he can't solve the, the problem in four pages. So he says, look, in volume two – Okay, I'm going to show you how the whole thing works. There's, uh, if you look at the sum total of the year's production, it's all very easy. But then you get the circuits of the different capitals crossing and intermingling, and it becomes very confusing. And I'll show you how the whole system actually reproduces itself in volume two. And you, you know, in other words, we will see that in fact this. Uh, Additional constant capital does not vanish, does not become additional variable capital, uh, far from it. Um, and this is why, for instance, Marx divided the um, uh, economy for the purposes of this analysis, as you said, into two departments, one that produces means of production, one of which produces consumer goods. Okay, that division is just the most natural division in order to tackle the kind of uh, argument that Smith is making and to disprove it by tracking what happens to, you know, the money that's spent on additional uh, means of production, additional constant capital, and showing that it does not, in the end, resolve itself into additional wages or additional hiring of workers. Okay, so he, say, he says right in volume one that this is the purpose of the analysis. In volume two, when he begins to talk about reproduction, he's got uh, the first chapter is something called um, former presentations of the subject. Yeah, and almost all of it is about this analysis and claim by Adam Smith. Mm-hmm. Almost the whole chapter is about that. So it's, it's very clear that this is what was on Marx's mind. This is the reason he developed the schemes, and uh, or at least by far the main reason he, he developed the schemes was to answer this trickle-down argument by, by Adam Smith. So I think the first time I read about Marx's reproduction schemes, it was in David Harvey's book, Limits to Capital. And this is how he describes them in his book. Um, He says, quote, the models of expanded reproduction explore the conditions that would permit accumulation to proceed in balanced fashion through exchanges of commodities between different sectors or departments of an economy. And then later, like a couple pages later, he says, quote, the two sector accumulation model Marx builds appears appears to show that under the right conditions, including correct investment strategies on the part of capitalists, accumulation can continue relatively trouble-free forever. A model depicting the reproduction of capitalism in perpetuity has certain attractions for bourgeois economists, but it poses serious dilemmas for Marxists. And then I think a page later, he sort of gives his interpretation of how to resolve that dilemma by saying, quote, 
The reason for taking so much trouble to define equilibrium is, as always, to be better able to understand why departures from that condition are inevitable under the social relations of capitalism, end quote. And this is a fairly common way of viewing Marx's reproduction schema, um, but it's a view you criticize in this paper. So what what is your view of this type of interpretation or reading of, of Marx? Right, my basic comment on what uh, Harvey writes is that it's simple reproduction. He's simply reproducing the inaccuracies and myths that he's oh, appropriated yeah. from elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, there, there's, there's nothing to this. There, there's, there's, there's nothing to this view. When you say there's nothing to it, you mean there's, there's no basis? There, there, there's, there's, no, there's no textual basis mm-hmm. for this. I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, there is simple reproduction and there is expanded reproduction. And in simple reproduction, by definition, there's balance between the two departments uh, because the, the, they both grow at a zero rate. Neither of them grow. Uh, in Marx's uh, schemes of expanded reproduction, in fact, if you look at it, they don't grow at the same rate all the time, although uh, given Marx's assumption that, uh, you know, he just says, well, let's assume that in uh, department one that produces means of production, they uh, capitalize, they reinvest a constant share of their surplus value or profit. Okay, so with that assumption, um, the two departments are not growing at the same rate, but eventually they... uh, the rates at which they grow converge. So you you know you could set it up so that they 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 do they do grow at the same rate. You could set it up so that they do have balanced growth. But 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 here's the here's the problem. Harvey says the two sector accumulation model Marx builds, you know, appears to show blah blah blah. And the reason Marx takes so much trouble to define equilibrium, okay. This is not the reason. Marx is, this is not Marx's intent. Okay, there's there are the the, the numbers that you know the, the the numerical examples in volume two, but what is the intent that Marx has? Why is he doing it? Well, as I said, the the whole issue, or at least by far the overriding issue, is to disprove this uh, argument about the trickling down of uh, investment, uh, you know, to, to the working class that uh, Adam Smith makes. Marx nowhere says, I want to show you how balanced growth operates in capitalism, either to say, in fact, it is a system in balanced growth, or I'm going to show you how balanced growth would work in order to show you how difficult it would be for capitalism to uh, achieve that in reality. Marx says neither thing. He's not. He's just not addressing the issue of balanced growth. He, yeah. he doesn't say the system is in balance, and I want to show that. He doesn't want to say the system is not in balance, and I want to show that by showing you how hard it would be to uh, obtain balance. He's not saying any of that because that's not what he's concerned with. So yeah. all of this is made up. You know, I'm not saying Harvey made it up. I'm saying what Harvey has is a simple reproduction of the <laughs> claims made by people who have made it up. Right. I, I can't remember if the paper goes into the origin of the this 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 reading. Do you have a sense of where it originates? Is it I, just- I do not. I I I, I look. You know, um, I, I I I can't say I know who was the first to come up with this. Uh, to my mind, the, the, the more interesting and difficult question is how have people come to ignore what the schemes are actually about when it's, yeah. as you said, it's right there. You know, it, it's not only right there, but it's also like in volume one in chapter 24 at the beginning of the whole analysis of accumulation that, you know, kind of like more people read than read volume two. I mean, you know, you, to, to get to that part of volume two, you got to go through this and that about turnover time and the cost of circulation. I mean, you know, you, you, you can get you, you can fall asleep several times before you get to the, <laughs> yeah. the schemes of reproduction uh, in, 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 in volume two. But I mean, a lot more people supposedly read volume one. And he says, look, you know, 
Smith is full of crap. Here's why he's full of crap. But to show that he's full of crap, you know, it, it's kind of complex. And I'll show it to you in volume two. He says it right there. Yeah. How can this be ignored? Well, I'll tell you how. I'll, I mean, I, I can only speak for myself because before your paper, I would have um, not seen it. But uh, in my own process of, you know, coming to volume two was that I read other people's descriptions of volume two and it was pretty much Harvey's description of what's going on and I think the first thing I read in volume two was the reproduction schemes I didn't read the whole book you know from the beginning to the end I flipped to the reproduction schemes and read those right right did and you read the, the chapter former presentations of the subject I no no no, no, no. I went straight to the reproduction schemes yeah, and yeah. I read them with the interpretation that I had you know read from Harvey and other people and thought I understood them, you know, very patiently worked through all the schemes and read, read them. At, uh, and, um, later, you know, went back and read volume two, maybe a year or two later. Um, so, but it wasn't until I sort of read your paper and just became more aware of the need to like actually read things in context to see how Marx is relating to, um, you know what what the arguments are doing and how it relates to other theories that uh, that it became pretty obvious to me that that's that the whole thing is a reply to Smith. Yeah, I tell you, it it, it helps to read Marx when one's interpreting him. <laughs> um, I I guess it's easier, it's more yeah. efficient not to do so, and yeah. it's probably a lot better for one's career to you know engage in the simple reproduction of the myths that other people have put forward. Uh, certainly a lot easier when you're writing a book because, you know, you can just, like, give your view of the current controversy without regard to, like, what Marx said. But Right, right. So one of the early things you do in the paper is you distinguish between two notions of balance, the balance of supply and demand, and then um, balance growth. Um, what does this have to do with interpretations of the reproduction schemes as depicting equilibrium or, or not? Right. Um, well, again, we get the two, two notions. Equilibrium, again, can mean many things. One can mean an equilibrium of supply and demand. Another can be equilibrium in the sense of balanced growth. Okay, so let me just talk about uh, equality of supply and demand versus balanced growth, i.e., uh, the two departments, social uh, production growing at the same rate. Um, okay, according to this myth, the, the myth version of what Marx is doing in the reproduction schemes is showing us a harmonious, um, steady growth balanced growth system there's two versions of that either he's showing this to us because he believes that capitalism exhibits this balanced growth or he's trying to show us how hard it would be for capitalism to achieve such balanced growth okay but in either case that's the argument now what seems to be unless you think about it a little bit carefully, what seems to be textual evidence for this idea that he is showing us balanced growth in order to point out how difficult it is to achieve, what seems initially to be evidence for that are various remarks that Marx makes here and there uh, in his analysis of reproduction where he talks about the amounts supplied and the amounts demanded being in balance, and that's needed for reproduction, uh, and that that equality of supply and demand takes place with friction. It is not difficult. It is not easy to achieve. It, it, you know, sometimes it doesn't happen, uh, and it's only achieved with some difficulty. So Marx does say, okay, for reproduction to take place, we need equilibrium of supply and demand. In other words, the amount of means of production demanded has to be met with uh, an equal amount supplied. 
the amount of articles of consumption uh, demanded has to be met with an equal amount uh, supplied. Uh, that can take place. It can't take place without some difficulties. Oftentimes, it does not take place. So he does marks, you know, uh, highlight that there are obstacles to uh, the achievement of equilibrium between supply and demand. However, that has absolutely nothing to do with the issue of balanced growth. Okay? The two things are completely different. The equality of supply and demand takes place at a moment in time. It's now. This is the amount supplied now. This is the amount demanded now. When you talk about growth, balanced growth, unbalanced growth, you're obviously not talking about a moment in time. You're talking about, you know, a process taking place over time. Okay? So, you're talking about how fast does uh, production of means of production grow? How fast does production of articles of consumption grow? Okay? That's a completely different issue from the equality of supply and demand. So, Marx's comments about Difficulties in achieving equality of supply and demand have nothing to do with that issue of balanced growth. Does Marx comment ever on the difficulties in achieving balanced growth? No. Does he even say that there is balanced growth in his schemes? No. He does compute growth rates. It's not like he doesn't care about growth rates. He's, he's Many times in the text, he's talking about growth rates or computing growth rates, but never once does he say, you know, in this scheme of expanded reproduction, that the two departments are growing at the same rate. It, it, it was just not something he cared about there because, again, the schemes were developed for a different reason. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. 
and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So oftentimes Marx's reproduction schemes are characterized like this. Um, the model of simple reproduction that depicts the necessary proportions of production and exchange between departments one and two, which we defined earlier, in an economy with no growth. The model of expanded reproduction shows these necessary proportions for an economy with growth. In both simple and expanded reproduction, there's a balance of supply and demand and production and exchange. Um, so there's, there's, there's production and exchange is balanced, supply and demand is balanced in both simple and expanded reproduction. How does your view differ from this reading? Mostly it doesn't. Uh, as I said, if you you know actually look at the details of Marx's numerical examples of expanded reproduction, um, there is not balanced growth. But the uh, as time goes on, given Marx's assumption that the constant share of the surplus value is uh, of Department One is 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 capitalized is invested, the system converges to one in which there's balance between the growth rates of the two uh, departments. Okay. My problem is not with, okay, here's the situation in the case of simple reproduction. Here's the situation with the case of uh, expanded reproduction. There's a different problem, which is the main burden of my paper is to is to highlight this problem. By virtue of what are we contrasting these two situations as distinct models of an economy? Why are we not saying, ah, here is one phase of the capitalist economy that it inherits, you know, because before capitalism, there wasn't a hell of a lot of growth. So capitalism was in an inherited state of simple reproduction or something close to that. And, well, what we have now is, you know, economies that grow, expanded reproduction. So what we've had clearly is a transition from simple to expanded reproduction. So why is it the case that people do not view these as phases of capitalist development, but as two contrasting models that have nothing to do with one another, rather than the total process of of moving from a no-growth society to one where growth is the norm? So my that that's 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 my issue. The the issue is not you know is there uh, zero growth in both departments in simple reproduction? Yes, there is. Or you know can there be uh, a balance in the sense of uh, equal growth rates of the two departments in expanded reproduction? Yes, that's that's possible in theory. Okay, that, but I don't have a problem with that. My problem is when you start to talk about Marx's text. And you have to talk about his purposes and this idea that he is presenting us with two self-contained models, you know, in order to show us balanced growth. No, there's just no, there's just nothing to that. Okay. But the, the, the main thing I'm trying to say is not only did Marx not intend to show us balanced growth, but we can understand fruitfully the schemes as a process of unbalanced growth by instead of counterposing them, comparing them and seeing the, the simple reproduction as the jumping off point and then getting a transition to expanded reproduction. That wasn't the purpose of what Marx was getting at. Uh, again, he was trying to uh, disprove Adam Smith, but he does comment on this issue of, of the transition from simple to expanded reproduction. And it is a very big deal because, you know, this has happened in capitalist economy after capitalist economy, country after country. You know, they've moved from one to the other. And to a remarkable extent, they've moved in precisely the manner that uh, Marx's analysis indicates, where you get uh, increasing production of means of production. How? By Department 2 taking a hit, uh, by reduction uh, even an absolute mm-hmm. reduction in consumer production. It happened in, mm-hmm. in, in England, it happened in, in, in Russia, it happened uh, you know, in Japan, uh, and so forth. And basically, Marx's reproduction schemes 
um, demonstrate mathematically that in order to move from simple reproduction to expanded reproduction, there has to be this um, so sacrificing of consumption, the production of consumption goods in order to produce more means of production so that um, the economy can be more productive and can expand. Given the assumptions, the explicit assumptions that Marx um, makes in his analysis, that's absolutely correct. Okay, there is only one way for uh, growth to occur. Uh, Department one has to uh, produce more means of production. Okay, how can it produce more means of production? Well, it's a problem because it needs more means of production to produce more means of production. But where does it get these additional means of production so that it can produce more means of production? Well, Marx is assuming a closed economy. So it's, you're not getting them from abroad. Uh, he, he's not assuming any uh, accumulation of stocks from the past, so you can't get it that way. Basically, all the, yeah. all the ways that you could get it other than you know, taking it from Department 2 are, are gone. So that's what happens. Department 1 is able to produce more means of production because it gets more means of production by a reduction in the amount of uh, means of production that uh, Department 2 has. So Department 2 shrinks. More means of production go into Department 1. More of the working population. Uh, labor force goes into Department 1, less into Department 2. So you get an expansion of production in Department 1, contraction in Department 2. Okay, now the economy is bigger and, you know, uh, Department 1 can keep on growing and because the economy is bigger, eventually Department 2 can keep on growing, uh, can, can start to resume growth as well. Yeah, so I, I was saying that, you know, uh, although Marx's main purpose, maybe his only real purpose in developing these schemes was to disprove Adam Smith's uh, trickle-down uh, idea about what happens when the capitalists accumulate. He does indeed talk about the unbalanced growth uh, in connection with this uh, transition between uh, simple and expanded reproduction. It's it's right there in his uh, chapter on expanded re reproduction. He writes, for instance, thus in order to make the transition from simple reproduction to expanded reproduction, department, uh, let me start that again. Thus, in order to make the transition from simple reproduction to expanded reproduction, production in department one must be in a position to produce fewer elements of constant capital for department two, but all the more for department one. This transition, which can never be achieved without difficulty, is made easier by the fact that a number of the products of Department 1 can serve as means of production in both departments. He says right before that, if we consider the level of reproduction uh, at the start of the transition from simple to expanded on the part of Department 1, we still find ourselves within the limits of simple reproduction for no additional capital has been set in motion and no more surplus labor uh, than was performed on the basis of simple reproduction. The distinction is that the form of the surplus labor uh, is that it, when we get to expanded reproduction, it's spent on means of production uh, for department one instead of for department two means of production for means of production instead of on means of production for means of consumption. So Marx does talk about the transition from one to the other. So it, it, it's clear that, you know, when he was thinking about it, he wasn't thinking of two self-contained models, like alternatives, but of a process of moving from simple to expanded reproduction. And he was very clear that uh, he understood that this process of transitioning from one to the other meant faster growth of Department 1, sl slower growth and, in fact, initial contraction of uh, Department 2. In other words, uh, more production of means of production, less production, at least initially, of articles of consumption. It, it, it is right there in his text. He was aware of it, and to the extent that he is looking at uh, simple and expanded reproduction um, 
he he's you know together he's he's not considering them as alternatives but as um as phases in, in an overall historic process i find this stuff really fascinating and, and one of the other things that was fascinating in, in your paper that you point out is that this understanding of what marx is doing what was common to past thinkers i, I don't want i don't want to call them pre-modern uh the, the, this concept of Marx's production schemes as depicting unbalanced growth is something that we see in, in writers from an earlier period, like Lenin and Lux, Luxembourg. And that's even interesting because Luxembourg is, is, I think of as being someone who criticized Marx's reproduction schemes for, for predicting capitalism wouldn't go into crisis. So you know, what, were, what were Lenin and Luxembourg's view about this? Well, actually, I mean, in a, yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the Luxembourg thing is kind of uh, surprising. But we, among the things that she criticized Marx's schemes for was uh, production for production's sake. She says this is what the schemes um, mm-hmm. exhibit is production that's not for consumption. And that goes right along with the whole uh issue of transitioning from simple to expanded reproduction because yeah uh how how does the economy grow if you're not like getting new means of production by buying them from abroad or from buffer stocks the, the the economy is growing by shifting more of your resources into production and means of production the existing resources and you do that by taking away those resources from the production uh, of con- consumer goods. So, um, in in a sense, you know, she she kind of had to be aware of this. Although, I, I, it, it's not clear to the extent the extent to which she she contradicts herself. But Lenin was very clear, right? He wrote uh, Marx clearly demonstrated in the schemes. Uh, production of the means of production can and must outstrip the production of articles of consumption. Now, he's not getting that by looking at the scheme of simple reproduction. Probably not getting that by looking at the scheme of expanded reproduction. How's he getting that? By comparing the two, by seeing you know, the move from one, the, the one to the other. Raya Dunyevskaya was you know, like one of the only people, let's say after World War II, to continue to talk about the schemes of reproduction in this manner she she actually had a very uh, astute analysis explaining uh, some things that were said by Lenin but not really clarified uh, too well uh, she always uh, understood the, the schemes as, as depicting the faster growth of means of production as against articles of consumption but the whole rest of the literature uh, it just does not Generally, you know, the issue is not even raised that uh, other people have said uh, anything different. You know, all of that, like, literature of the era of Lenin and Luxembourg and Bogakov and Tukin Baranowski seems to have been lost, except, like, for instance, uh, Roman Rostovsky, you know, happened to mention, you know, that Lenin had this uh, analysis of the schemes as showing that uh, Department 1 grows faster than Department 2, and so Rostovsky reports that Lenin says this and then says it's crazy because, of course, you know, we all know that the schemes show us balanced growth. It was a very, very big issue for, for, for Lenin um, because it had to do with the, um, the whole issue of uh, capitalist development in Russia, Lenin's debates uh, with the, the Narodniki, the populists. I mean, it, it was a very big issue. We don't tend to talk about this too much nowadays, but to the prior to World War One, this was like a really the discussion of reproduction was really very central uh, to Marxist economic thinking. Hmm. Uh, it was much more sophisticated uh, with respect hmm. to the reproduction schemes than the kind of stuff we get now. Yeah. So we've alluded to at least, and when I read the. Um abstract of your paper this something called the takeoff process and that this idea of the transition from simple reproduction to expanded reproduction um you know maybe has some strong similarities with what economists call the takeoff process do you want to go into that with a little more detail yeah i mean um this term takeoff was popularized by walt whitman rostow 
uh, an economist. Um, he, he wrote a book in 1960, The Stages of Economic Growth and Non-Communist Manifest, and he popularized the term takeoff. And what it refers to is a uh, you get an initial situation where you got a no-growth economy, in other words, simple reproduction, and then you know how do you move to a situation in which economic growth is normal? Okay, well, it requires certain conditions, and that's the, the, the takeoff process. The, the Marxist literature post-World War II just like does not think of the reproduction schemes uh, in this manner. By and large, you know, any economists uh, who are like growth theorists and so forth, to the extent that they refer to Marxist schemes at all, they don't refer to it in this manner. But the economic growth literature, the development, excuse me, not economic growth literature, the development economics literature, the, the, the economists who and, uh, and others uh, who are concerned with economic development are very concerned uh, with this issue. And, you know, what they have noticed is that the kind of process that Marx is describing here when he says, here's how the transition from simple to expanded reproduction works, or in other words, here is how the takeoff works. Uh, they have all said, you know, here's the way it works. It's it turns out to be exactly what, what, what Marx said. For instance, Sir W.A. Lewis, Nobel Prize winner, West Indian economist, in, in his 1955 book, The Theory of Economic Growth, he says the British, the Japanese, and the Russian industrial revolutions all fit into the same pattern. In each case, the immediate result is that the benefits of rising productivity do not go to the classes who would increase their consumption peasants, wage earners, but into private profits or public taxation where the proceeds are used for further capital formation. More and more labor is taken into wage employment, but real wages are not allowed to rise as fast as productivity. So you got more workers, okay, um, but their wages are kept down and you get more profit and the profit gets plowed into more means of production, further capital formation. And other economists say the yeah. same thing. The, the actual historical experience has been remarkably close yeah. to the kind of situation that, that Marx's schemes depict and that Marx remarked on, in which how does yeah. a capitalist economy move from zero growth to growth as a normal process by the relative expansion of production for production and the relative contraction of production for human consumption. Now, if we go back to the quote from Harvey um, and his contention that the reason for, um, as he understands it, um, modeling equilibrium is to then later show how hard it is to maintain equilibrium or how, you know, what forces might pull us away from equilibrium that's like an understanding of capitalist crisis, right? That um, from that sort of reading, but on, in your reading of this reproduction schemes as depicting unbalanced growth, um, how does that relate to a theory of crisis? Right. The the schemes in the sense of the diagrams, um, you know, uh, the numerical examples that Marx put forward are really not very good in and of themselves for talking about economic crisis. Um, first of all, like in terms of Marx's theory of crisis in which there's a tendency of the rate of profit to fall, there is no tendency for the rate of profit to fall in, in any real sense, uh, you know, given the assumptions of these numerical examples, because again, Marx is uh, abstracting from technological progress. He's assuming yeah. that, you know, the same techniques of production are used. Uh, therefore, mm -hmm. the uh, per unit uh, prices and values of uh, everything are constant. So you don't get this uh, issue of rising productivity, uh, tending to reduce uh, commodities, values, and prices. So um, right. in, in that sense, the schemes are not uh, helpful for theorizing crisis. On the other hand, I mean, understanding... The, uh, the scheme of expanded reproduction is helpful for just modeling and, and just for thinking about uh, the 
more realistic process of capital accumulation. And it is through that, of course, that process of capitalist accumulation that we get uh, investment in additional means of production, you know, uh, and along with that oftentimes goes technological progress. So, I mean, when you talk about technological progress, it's not with the same existing machines. It's by virtue of new machines. It's by virtue of investment or expanded reproduction. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, right. it, is, it is actually a very easy thing to do. You know, you can show examples where like, you know, it, it, investment, uh, technological progress uh, leads to a fall of the rate of profit on the basis of Marx's value theory. It's easy to show that in like, you know, uh, an example where you just have like one sector or the overall capitalist economy. It's, it's very simple to do the same thing with like two departments of social production, department one, department two. It, it's, it's not a difficult matter. You get, you get very different numbers because you you're not using the same exact assumptions that, that Marx made of no technological progress. You introduce technological progress, uh, you get quite different results. You get a fall in the rate of profit, you know, and, and so forth. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. Oh.